Good morning, ladies. You may be seated. Thank you. Beth, we are so thankful that we have you to play and to lead and to help us get started this morning. <clears throat> um, would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we're able to come here today and open your word. And Father, would you come alongside it and help us to understand it? Give us ears to ear, hear, and eyes to see. And we will ask this in the name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> Daniel White was a newly resigned member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors who had major second thoughts about his resignation when he walked into City Hall and shot the mayor then walked across the building and shot another board member, his nemesis, Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay elected official in the state of California with whom he would often disagree. After the shooting, White turned himself in. He even confessed that he had originally intended on shooting two other politicians as well. It was discovered that he snuck in through a basement window with his guns and ammunition in order to bypass the metal detectors. At his trial, the defense never challenged that he shot the man, or shot the men, but that he had been depressed, and therefore he had diminished capacity and was unable to premeditate the crime. An expert psychiatrist explains that in the days prior to the shooting, White, who was usually very health and fitness conscious, had consumed large amounts of sugar and soft drinks. He explained that the sugar consumption, as well as some other things, were indicative of his diminished capacity, his depression. Well, this was 1978. And the press at that time had a field day with that explanation. And they began to refer to it as the Twinkie defense. Maybe um, you have heard of that expression, the Twinkie defense. Blame it on the Twinkies. In the end, White was charged with the lesser crime of manslaughter and sentenced only seven years in prison. He would serve five. He had been described as a good, all-American guy. One professor familiar with the case asked this question, what makes a good man kill? That's a good question. What does make a good man kill? What makes a good person do anything sinful? Is it the sugar? or the depression, or the infuriating actions of others? What is to blame? And perhaps another good question would be to consider is, are we good people that sin, or are we depraved people that sin? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 1? We're going to be in James chapter 1, 
verse 12. I also have this printed out for you on a second sheet of paper on your papers. And that's because this morning I'm going to encourage you to do some underlining as we read this. I would suggest you underline every occurrence of the word trial, test, and temptation. So we're looking at three T words, trial, test, temptation. They're key words in the passage as well. Here we go. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, verse 12, it starts out telling us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Some of your versions will use the word perseveres under trial. And we talked about this last week. One of the tests of genuine faith is that it perseveres. Okay, it endures, it remains. In particular, it perseveres under trial, okay, under pressure. All right, this morning, we're going to talk about a particular kind of trial. Last week, we talked about meeting or encountering a trial, the kind that you stumble unexpectedly onto. Today, we want to talk about a trial that involves something tempting and sinful. All right, here's our first point, and this is where we're headed. Number one, a test of genuine faith is seen in the way a person handles sin and temptation. The relationship that a person has with sin, sin and temptation is going to be very revealing, okay, as far as a test of genuine faith. The way a person navigates their sin and temptation is going to change. Are they still going to be tempted? Are they still going to sin? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that. But there needs to be steadfastness and maturing in that area. And so James is going to give us a lesson on that. Look at what he says, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right, James is telling us God cannot be tempted by evil. Okay, God is not drawn to evil. He is not tempted by it. He's completely separate from evil. In fact, um, his character cannot be tempted. You could draw an arrow from that phrase down to verse 17, which tells us that God is thoroughly good. All right, everything good is coming from him. He is thoroughly good on the inside and the outside, and there is no variation. All right, here's our next point. Number two, God is not like us. He is completely good. He cannot be drawn to anything sinful or evil. Okay, God does not have the slightest inclination toward evil, and so he can't be tempted by it. 
All right. Not only that, James says he never tempts. Okay. It never. James is stressing when it comes to sin and temptation, God is never going to tempt you. All right. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, I'd like to give you an example. I have six grandchildren, um, soon to be seven. And any time that I'm with the grandbabies and we're um, near a, a road or a parking lot, I get very cautious. You know, I want to make sure that I'm holding their hand or I want to make sure they're in a stroller. I want to make sure they're safe. All right, now what if, what if I were to take those uh, six grandbabies uh, to a, say, a highway or a busy street and I was to get out into the middle of the street and say, hey, babies, come on, come on out here. Let's look how fun it is. Look how fun. Come on, come on. Bring your little baby toys, and we'll play, and we'll play a dodge car. Okay? I would never do that. I would never in a million, billion years ever do that. Now, why? Because I love my grandbabies. Because I'm... Um, their parents have been teaching them, do not play on the street. I'm not going to try to get them to disobey them. Okay, and, and, and then my character, as flawed as it is, would never, ever do something like that. All right, now, this is what James is telling us. Okay, he's saying, listen, let no one say when they are tempted by evil that you are being tempted by by God, because God will never in a million billion years ever tempt you. He's saying that is preposterous. God would never do anything like that. He is never going to tempt you to be evil. He is never going to be the crazy grandmother out in the street trying to lure you. Or to put this another way, let's say that you are walking, you are trying to walk the straight and narrow. He is never, ever going to be off to the side trying to pull you off. Okay? Never. Why? Because he is thoroughly good. Because he is thoroughly good. And he himself has no inclination toward evil. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I agree with all of that. I would never accuse God of tempting me to sin in the first place. James is making a big deal about nothing or something that doesn't apply to me because I don't blame God for my sin. Okay, let's think about that one. Have you ever heard or said anything like this? My daughter is getting so sassy with me. You know, her basketball coach has an attitude. I think she's getting it from her. <laughs> or, you know, all of our problems started when we put him back into public school. Or when he started playing with that little Rogers boy. Or when he joined the basketball team, they have been such a terrible influence on him. Or, he can't help it. He's a college boy, and he's surrounded by all those beautiful women walking around half-naked. Or, I know that I can be manipulative and deceptive, but my parents were divorced, and that's all I know. Or, 
I know that I'm bitter and angry, but you know, I lost my grandmother at a very crucial time in my life and we were very close. And then several years later, I lost my father. Or I can't help it if I'm irritable and cranky. That's what happens when your hormones are raging and you haven't had any sleep. I wonder if you've ever said any variation of those things. <clears throat> I know I have. Well, you may be thinking, yeah, but what does that have to do with blaming God for our sin? Okay, let's let the Bible explain that one. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Keep your finger here. We're coming back. Genesis chapter 3. Your pages should be worn because we visit this often. This is the account of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we're going to pick up just after they have eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree. And I want you to watch closely what they do. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right. God confronts both of them about their disobedience and their sin, and watch what they do. They don't confess. They blame. Okay. They blame their circumstances. They blame their surroundings, but ultimately they are blaming God. Okay, Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me. Hey, wait a minute. This is your fault. Now this, I, I would underline that if, um, if you mark in your Bibles. You could even mark next to this the universal human reaction to sin. That's what this is. We blame we blame our circumstances, we blame our surroundings, we blame our upbringing, we blame the cards we've been dealt. But ultimately, we are blaming God. This is your fault. You're the one that gave me divorced parents. You're the one that gave my five-year-old the lousy teacher. You're the one that gave me bad health. You're the one that gave me no money. You're the one that gave me crazy hormones. You're the one out on the street luring me to come in. This is your fault. If you are a sovereign God, then you are to blame, or at least partly. And James would answer, let me be very clear. God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt any man. And yes, God is sovereign over all your trials and your difficulties, but let no man say when he is tempted to do evil, it is because God is the one off to the side trying to lure you off your way. Because that's not what's going on. Okay, this is probably a great time for some explanation of two words. The words tested and tempted. All right, in the Greek, in this passage, they are the same word, 
In fact, um, every one of those words that you circled are the same word in the Greek. All right, and so in the Greek, it is a very neutral word, and I have the definition on your papers. It is parasimos, to try to learn the nature or character of something or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing. Now, you've got one word, and it's used two different ways. Now, how do you know which way to use it? Well, you're going to look at the context, right? The context is going to determine the author's intention. Here's our next point, number three. The same word, parasimos, is either A, a test that lets people prove themselves, or B, a temptation that leads to sin. The word can mean either of those. All right, now next to the top one, a test, you can write God does. And next to the bottom one, a temptation, you can write God never does. All right. In fact, a, another simple difference between a test and a trial really comes down to the response of the person. All right. If you pass, it was a test. So you could write the word pass next to that A uh, phrase. And um, if you fail, then it was a temptation. So temptation is a fail. All right. And God is never the one to lead to the temptation or the sin. He will never, he will never be the grandmother on the street trying to entice the children, okay? He is never going to be the one off to the side trying to entice you off the straight and narrow, okay? All right, well, then that raises an important question. If he is not the tempter, then who or what is? How does temptation operate? All right, well, he's going to tell us, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Some of your versions may say enticed by his own lusts. All right, James is saying each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. All right, now notice this here. James is now telling us what it is that's off to the side. Okay, trying to pull us off the straight and narrow. Okay, so um, we want to break this down and let's define a few more words. All right, for starters, let's define the word lured and I have this on your paper, it means to, um, some of your versions may say carried away, but it means to draw or drag out to lead away. Now, next to that, you can write the word hunting or even fishing because this is a hunting or fishing term. It was used to describe the way a hunter might dangle some bait in order to get an animal to leave its place of safety. All right, so you can maybe think of a fish and you're dangling it in front of a, a bear to get him to leave his den so that you can shoot him or capture him, okay? So it's hunting term. All right, next word, enticed. This word is similar. It means to lure into sin, to catch by a bait, like a trapper would, All right? James is saying that each person is tempted. He's drawn out when he's drawn out from his place of safety by some type of bait that's dangling in front of him, and then he's caught by the bait, and notice what that bait is, his own desire. All right, let me put that another way. Let's say you're walking, you're trying to walk down the straight and narrow, and off to the side here, you've got some magazines with some really cool-looking stuff on it, or maybe there's a Facebook post or an Instagram post. And over here, you've got a TV show with a really good-looking guy on it. Maybe down here, you've got 
some girls and they're sitting around sharing some juicy gossip. Okay? Those are things, those things are off to the side, much like a carnival. And they're saying, hey, come over here. This will be fun. Check this out. You should indulge yourself in some old-fashioned lust and coveting and gossip. Okay? And then James says to us, do not be deceived. Those things are calling out to you. Those things are trying to lure you. But you have a heart inside that wants to get off the straight and narrow and go play with them. You have inborn selfish desires that want what they're peddling. So on one hand, you've got the temptations and they're calling out to you and they're saying, hey, come over here. This is fun. I know you want it. And then on the other hand, at the same time, you have a sinful heart that is going, I do want that. I do want it. Here's our next point, and it's something that Alistair Begg says. Number four, sin is an inside job. Sin is an inside job. James is helping us to understand that when it comes to sin and temptation, you cannot blame God. You cannot blame Satan. You cannot blame the neighbor kid. You cannot blame the magazine. You cannot blame the hormones. Now, you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I think I can. What about Satan? He tempts. He dangled the fruit in front of Eve? Are you saying that, um, or, or what about the sassy teacher or the little Rogers boy? Are you saying they're not responsible? Are you saying they're not accountable? No, no. They will give an account. They will give an account. And they definitely are luring and enticing and calling out to you. But James' point is that they are a Effective because of our own indwelling sinful lusts. All right, now, am I saying that when you see your children involved in some type of sinful behavior, that you shouldn't be concerned about who or what is influencing them? That you shouldn't be concerned about what is luring or tempting them? No, you absolutely should be. You need to be wise, you need to be the parent. But you also need to understand that you have given birth to a sinner that is predisposed to all of those enticing things that are being dangled in front of them. Think of it this way. It is one thing to dangle a fish in front of a bear that wants it. Its, it's nature is to, to want that fish. It's another matter to dangle a fish in front of a gerbil yeah, a gerbil has no taste for fish. All right, one day, the Christian will be like the gerbil. We're promised that. We've talked about, that in pre talked about this in previous classes when we've talked about our future salvation and how we will be saved from the presence of sin. The presence of sin in our own bodies will be removed one day. But presently, we're like the bear 
and the fish. That's our nature right now. We still have a taste for sin, a remaining, a remaining taste for sin within us. Okay, so what are we to do? Well, um, let's take a look at what James says. Verse 14, he says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desire, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All right, James is explaining the order of the steps leading up to sin. He says each one is tempted. All right, here's our next point. Number five, every believer struggles with sin and temptation. Now, I know you know this, but I wanted it on your papers. You will never get to the point where you are no longer tested slash tempted. All right? As long as you're on this side of heaven. No matter how carefully you arrange your TV shows for the children, okay, or how faithful you are to have your quiet times, or how intentional you are to stay off social media, okay, trials and temptation is a matter of when. Okay? Now, am I saying you shouldn't be selective about what you allow your children to do or what you yourselves are doing? No, not at all. In fact, that we're going to see that those things are very instrumental in how we handle sin and temptation. But here's the thing. James does not want us to be deceived. He does not want us to be complacent or naive or unprepared. Okay? He wants us to understand that temptation is a very real part of the Christian experience. All right, here's another thing he wants us to understand. Number six, the goal of the temptation is to deceive the believer. All right, James is saying, do not be deceived. In fact, you might want to draw a line from the word deceived back to the word lure. The goal of a good lure is always to deceive. That's its purpose. The goal of a good lure is to help you forget that behind that dangling piece of fish is a gun ready to shoot you. Okay? A lure by its very design is intended to make something look appealing, something look enjoyable, something to make the victim feel safe and relaxed at a time when they should not. All right, now I want you to notice what James says. He says, each person is tempted. Temptation is a very personal thing. The things that tempt me may not tempt you. You know, you could, hand, you could dangle a, a bag of cocaine in front of me and I, it's not going to mean anything to me. Not that it would you either, but <laughs> it, it just it occurred to me. Um, that's not what I'm saying. But dangle a good piece of juicy gossip? Ooh, now that might be appealing. All right, here's our next point. Number seven, temptations are individual in nature. Individual in nature. We are not exactly the same. Does Satan know your individual weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Does he know what best to dangle in front of you? Does he know what areas of your life he will be most effective? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But it isn't rocket science. 
the reality is that I could probably figure out what yours are by spending some time with you, and you would be able to figure out what mine are by spending time with me. Right? Satan is not omniscient, but he knows the nature of man, and he's a lot like a good coach who looks at the game videos of his opposing team, and then he plans and coordinates accordingly. He's an opportunist. All right? Um, verse 15. James is going to give us a very graphic and useful picture to help us remember the steps into sin. He's going to use some birds and bees imagery, just like there's a sperm and an egg in the conception of a child. He explains in very similar terms that the ensnaring of the bait meets the lust of our desire. We give birth. There's a conception. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's saying that when those two things come together, they conceive, except that it does not conceive life. It conceives death. Here's our next point. Temptation in itself is not a sin. Temptation is not the sin. The dangling. Okay, that's not the sin. The first viewing of the dangling. It's only half of the equation. Let's, um, let's imagine if your husband is walking through the checkout counter at Harris Teeter and he's just surrounded with the uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, which in recent years has models uh, that aren't wearing swimsuits. And, and he sees those. Or maybe we could even um, use something more in line with you. Let's maybe you're going through the checkout counter and you see uh, a magazine with Joanna Gaines. And she's sitting in this perfectly decorated kitchen, farm kitchen, you know, the kind that makes you hate your own kitchen. <laughs> All right. Now, at this point, the fruit is just being dangled. Okay. It's saying to you, oh, you need this to be happy. You have an ugly kitchen. Look at this. All right. At this point, um, okay, James, he's telling us that the temptation, that's only half the equation. All right, it's when that luring and that enticement meets your own willing, sinful desires. Then there is conception. And look at what it gives birth to. Sin. So you have conceived sin in your metaphorical womb. And then when it grows, it delivers death. When that sin has had a chance to grow and develop, it's going to bring forth something stillborn. Okay. There isn't a woman in this room that could not relate in some way to the sorrow and the pain of a stillborn birth. And don't think for one minute that imagery was not intentional because it was. James is saying, do not be deceived. The conception of the sin can be enjoyable, but understand it brings forth sin. And when that sin becomes fully grown, you don't give birth to a sweet little bundle of joy. You have all the pain and all the travail, but you bring forth death. I have a little visual on your paper. It says when the in temptation or the enticement, it meets up with our willing sinful desires, then that gives birth to sin, and the trajectory of that is death. 
Okay, the problem is we rarely think of it like that. All right, we, we think, oh, seriously, what's the big deal? So what if I don't submit to my husband? So what if I don't want to dress modestly? So what if I want to watch that show? So what if I want to entertain a little lust and coveting in my mind? This is probably a good time to define death. And I have um, a place on your papers. It can mean several things. We're going to talk, we're going to see it again in this book of James. But it can mean, number one, it can mean a physical death. All right, that would be like when a person dies. That's the separation of the soul from the physical body. And there are certainly times when a sin could lead to that. All right, here's the next one, a spiritual death. That would be um, a refer to a separation between your soul and God. All right, and then the third, eternal death, that would be the eternal separation of the body and soul from God forever from those who die apart from Christ. All right, now, did you notice that with each one of those I used the word separation? I would probably write that word very big on your papers next to these because that's a great word to associate with the word death, separation. Now, if you are a disciple of Christ, you will never experience the third one, okay? Um, if, now, the first one, we'll, we will all eventually die and experience that one, and, uh, but it's the second one. The second one, you will most definitely experience in some form. Now, let me explain that. When we have unconfessed sin in our lives, okay, we're going to experience a death of sorts in that our fellowship, our intimacy, our communion with God is going to be interrupted, right? We experience a separation, all right? Um, here's our next point. Number nine, James wants us to know the gruesome end of temptation, which is death. All right, James wants us to know the progression of sin and temptation. Now, some of you may remember, we talked a lot about this when we did the course Lies Women Believe, <clears throat> and um, we talked about the progression. This morning, we want to review some of that, but we're going to go at it a little differently. Um, I want to use some of the expressions that Sinclair Ferguson uses when he teaches on this passage in James. And um, I have a place in your handout where we can write some of these things out. He explains that it is as if James wants us to see the progression of sin kind of in slow motion so we can see and understand what's going on. All right, here's what I mean. Number one, the first thing he says is attraction. Attraction. Now, next to this, you could write the words eyes or mind because this is the entry place when it comes um, to a temptation. You see something. Now, I suppose you could also write here something. But the idea is that something enters your mind and you're attracted to it. It appeals to you. Remember, we said um, you're drawn to it. Maybe you feel like you need it, okay? All right, okay, remember, it's the bait, it's dangling, and it's appealing to you in some way, all right? Now, let's give you an example. Let's say that you have a really handsome, good-looking neighbor, and uh, he's charming, and he's attentive, and he's appreciative, and he says something flirtatious. 
and you like it. It's a little exciting. You're attracted. All right, here's the second thing. It brings us to number two, deception. Okay, deception. Remember, the goal of temptation is always to deceive the believer, to make something look safe, to make something look fun. It's going to hide the poison. All right, so when it comes to that good-looking neighbor, deception says something like this. It's harmless. It's harmless. It's just a cute private Facebook message. It's not going to affect your marriage. What's wrong with a little extramarital dialogue besides you deserve the attention? You deserve the attention. Okay. Number three is preoccupation. All right, this is where the temptation, it's really got a chance to swirl around in your mind. Now you're thinking about it. Now you're starting to replay in your mind maybe previous conversations that you've had with the gentleman. All right, now maybe you check his Twitter feed. Maybe you start thinking of witty comments that you can make the next time you're together. Harmless, harmless things you could do. All right, number four is conception. Conception. Now, notice, really, everything that's up to this point, most everything has been taking place up here. It's mental. It's been said that you're never going to do anything sinful that you first haven't thought about. Now, at this stage, you move forward and you act on your sinful desires. Click. You send the message. All right, that brings us to number five, subjection. Once your sin has conceived, you become a slave to it. Now sin is ruling in your heart, which leads to number six, desperation. Sin brings the pain and the loss and the destruction. It brings the death. It's said that at this point, a person says, they realize I've sinned, I've made a mess of things, and there is no hope. All right, James wants his readers to understand the cycle of sin and temptation. He wants us to be wise about it. All right, he knows that if we are to grow and to mature and endure in our faith, then we're going to have to know how to deal with sin and temptation. All right, and knowing this cycle is going to be very useful. Okay, now here's what I mean. We're going to go through this again and look down this list. All right, for instance, attraction. James wants you to understand that there is still a remnant of sin living in us, and so sin is still going to be attractive, all right? And it's, it's going to be an issue, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to be ready. All right, that brings us to the second one, deception. Okay, we want to understand the deceptive nature of sin and how it works. You know, when my kids were little, the Poison Control Center used to give, us, give out these little kits, and they had what they were known. I don't know if you still have get these, but um, they would give out little Mr. Yuck stickers. They had, were these little green uh, stickers, and you would put them on all the dangerous stuff in your house. Like, I, you know, I'd put it on the Drano and the medicine box and all those things. Now, I still kept those things in a safe place, but it was an added warning to the kids, don't, don't eat these, don't, stay away, this is dangerous. Okay, now, we need to understand our enemy does not work like that. 
All right, he doesn't put Mr. Yuck stickers on the rat poison. You know what he does? He takes that poison and he wraps it up in a candy wrapper so that you'll eat it and taste it. All right, that's, that's the deceptive nature of sin. All right, three, preoccupation. All right, ladies, this is where you kill sin if you haven't already. All right, it's, it's in this stage when you're dwelling on it, when you're taking that second look, where you're going back. All right, this is where we need to kill it. When it's in the thought stage, this is where we put it to death. Before you've ever acted on it, put it to death. All right, good time to look at verse 17. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All right, did you ever wonder why in the middle of all this talk about sin and temptation, James starts telling us how God is the giver of every good and perfect gift? It's because it's completely connected to the way that we handle our sin and temptation. This is going to be your greatest defense against all the lures and the enticements that are out there that are being dangled before you. Yes, the bait looks good. Yes, it's enticing. It's attractive. Yes, there is a part of you that wants it, that's still attracted to it. But God is better. God is better. God's gifts are better. Grace is better. You see, you've got the enemy, and the enemy is whispering in your ear, and it's saying things like, oh, he doesn't want you to know how fun that is. Or he's such a tightwad, he don't want to give you nothing. He was, he's withholding from you. And James, James would take us by the shoulder and look us in the eye and say, snap out of it. Every perfect gift is coming down from above. Our God is good and there is no variation. Take your eyes off the dangling enticements and instead focus on the perfect and beautiful goodness of God. It's safe. It's satisfying. It does not matter what is dangled in front of you. God is always better. God is always better. All right, that brings us to four, conception. And I have a Bible verse on your paper. <clears throat> it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I would recommend memorizing this one. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, you may want to underline the line, will also provide the way of escape. That's the promise. Because for every temptation, every piece of dangling fish that is calling out to you, God will always provide a way of escape for every possible, every possible shiny, delicious, beautiful, tasty piece of bait. 
that is being dangled in front of you, God will provide an escape door. There is not one temptation, not one, that has to progress to number four. Because God is faithful and he's always going to provide the escape door. And if you are a Christian, he has provided you with the power to take that escape door. Now that may look different ways. It might be something as simple as turning off your phone. It may be something as simple as walking away from the TV or closing your lips. It may be something as simple as taking a different way home on your walk. Here's our next point, number 10. God is faithful. When believers are tempted, he will always provide a way of escape. Now, those last numbers, five and six, subjection and desperation. We want to be very mindful that when we sin, it conceives death. Sin is costly. Sin is costly. But what is the answer to our desperation? Notice what James says in verse 18. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, James reminds us of something. He reminds us that God is the one that brought us forth. He's reminding us that our salvation, it is a work of God. It is a work of grace. Grace, we have grace. He has given, we have grace, and he has made us his new creatures. The hope for desperation is always going to be grace. We always end up going back there. All right, here's our last point. It's a good, um, good final summary. Hope for the desperate believer is always grace and the knowledge that God has brought us forth to be his new creatures. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that James has given us this instruction so that we might not be deceived and that we might know the way sin and temptation works. Father, would you just allow these truths to, to sink in and allow us to be women that desire, desire your good and that we take that escape door and that we would grow and mature in, our, in the way we handle and deal with sin and temptation. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.